Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. I'm your host, Marilyn Germain. In this episode, Ethan McCarty, CEO of Integral, an employee activation agency, is going to discuss the results of a survey of more than 2,000 employees across the U.S. The goal of the survey was to evaluate their perceptions, their mindset, priorities, compensation, and also their values against 25 societal and political topics and how well their organization was making a difference on those values. Welcome, Ethan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Marie. Ethan, how was the data collected for that survey? And when was the data collected? Well, we started the survey in uh, the end of June and the beginning of July. So uh, just a couple months ago, a few months ago, this summer. And my organization hired uh, and partnered with uh, the Harris Poll, which I'm sure you know is you know, a very, very well-known public research uh, organization. Uh, with a tremendously high level of integrity and thoughtfulness about how they field these studies. And it was really important for us to partner with an organization that we felt was kind of the gold standard. Uh, so we feel very strongly that the representation that we got is, is very good. It, it is a, a good representation of the kind of modern workforce, if you will, in the United States. In what industries were the 2,000 respondents employed? So people came from a wide range of industries, uh, from healthcare, technology, retail, manufacturing, I mean, services, education, really across the board, but none of the segments were really large enough to isolate. But we were able to look at a really, really good generational spread. So for example, the Gen Z, Millennial, Gen X, and Baby Boomers, the proportion of their were you know, essentially at the same ratio of their representation in the workforce. Um, and so what we have been able to do is kind of slice the data a bit by generation and gender and even racial identity. So it helped us to understand that employees are not a monolithic or homogeneous kind of group. It, within any organization, you probably have a group of different publics. And so we really think it's important to, to be thinking about segmenting employee publics not just by high-level demographics like their location, their role, and you know whether they're a manager or not, those kind of things, but also to look at some of the, the deeper identities that are present in the workforce. Employees these days, you know, we all, I mean, myself included, we all are influenced by what we experience in our kind of consumer lives where customer experience and user experiences is so personalized and data-driven. And so, you know, one of the things that we uncovered is those expectations carry right into the workforce. So we feel like our employees should know us as at least as well as, you know, Amazon or, you know, the person who serves us our coffee at at Starbucks. That kind of uh, personalization and segmentation carries into our work life as well. Can you share some of the specifics about the respondents' demographics? Oh, absolutely. So, um, for example, uh, we had uh, something like 7% were Gen Z, 36% were Millennials, 34% were Gen Xers, like myself, uh, 22% were Baby Boomers. We had a something like 
four generations represented uh, 60, and then also in terms of racial backgrounds, something like 62% white, uh, identified as white, 11% identified as uh, black or African-American, 18% identified as Hispanic, and then many together represented people of Asian uh, lineage, you know, South Asian, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Filipino, and so on. And so uh, we, we feel really good about the data set, if you will. So you found that 36% of respondents feel that their organization does not reflect their values. You also found that 25% of them would warn a candidate that their organization is a bad place to work. Can you give an example of such values that you mentioned? There's a little bit of confusion between values and political stance. And I think when we, when we run this again, and you know, this was the inaugural survey, I believe we're gonna do this at least annually, we may end up doing it more than once a year. There are values that are declared by an organization. You often find them on the website and you find them in recruiting materials and posters in the hallway and so on. And then there are also values that are represented by uh, you know, what an organization says, does uh, you know, in the political and social sphere. So we, don't, we aren't able to completely unwind where people were differentiating those, but we did give uh, the respondents a pick list of 25 different issues from societal and political issues that they could select up to five, five issues that they felt were most important for their organization to make a positive difference on. And that list of 25 included things like Second Amendment rights and domestic violence, um, Israel-Palestine issues, sexual harassment in the workplace. And um, what we found is that uh, there was a very strong cluster across the top, the top five being employees, good health and well-being at 40%. So, you know, 40% of people put that in their top five. Job creation at 26%. Racial inequity and discrimination came in third at 25%. Data privacy came in at 24%. And gender and wage leadership gap came at 20%. We were all really surprised, actually, that climate change didn't end up in the top five, though it did rank pretty strongly at 18%. So the 25% of those who described their organizations as a bad place to work, to them, what's a bad place to work? Well, one of the things that we have found is that people are more likely to describe, not only describe their place as a great place to work, but also to start to literally translate those feelings and those perceptions into action if they also said that their values were represented by or aligned with their employer's values. So the way we kind of define a bad place to work is where that alignment doesn't exist or doesn't exist in a material sense. And so, you know, it could be for one person, they may experience their workplace as toxic. They may believe that it uh, lacks a work-life balance or they may have some policies that they don't like that, you know, related to their own life or related to how others are treated. And one of the things that we found is that you know, those who believe that their employer's values align with their personal values were something like two and a half times more likely to take a, a negative action against their employer. And we could talk about that in, in a moment. And they were something like two times more likely to take a positive action on behalf of their employer. 
Let's talk about the sharing of political views in the workplace, which is usually very taboo, right? You found that there's a split. What exactly is that split? It seems that, like many things in the United States these days, uh, we're kind of split down the middle. There's a, a real sense of polarization. So we asked two questions about that. One was, do you feel like people should have the ability to express their political views in the workplace? And the second one was, do you feel comfortable sharing your personal political views in the workplace? And on the first one, 48% of people said that people should have the ability to express their political views in the workplace. And on that second question, 51% of people feel comfortable sharing their own personal political views um, at work. And what may not surprise you is that the younger the respondent was, the more likely they were to feel that they should be able to have that ability and that they felt more comfortable. So baby boomers were less likely to feel comfortable expressing their viewpoint or hearing those of others in the workplace than say Gen Z. And I think this has a very important strategic implication for those in HR, communications. Uh, we should be thinking about, okay, if we want to attract the next generation of workers, uh, we should be thinking about creating spaces in which those tendencies and those desires can be exercised in the workplace uh, and, and create spaces that can be places of dialogue and positive connection and discussion, as opposed to trying to forbid or stop those behaviors, that's probably going to backfire. And we've seen some pretty high profile instances of you know, organizations trying to clamp down on political speech at work and the newer entrants into the workforce, they're going to walk. Aside from the millennial generation, which you just mentioned, you also found that African-Americans feel very strongly about sharing their political viewpoints. Why do you think that is? We are in a moment in the United States of recognizing a long history of systemic racial injustice, systemic racism. And so it will probably surprise no one that those who identified as Black or African-Americans were more likely to rank racial inequity higher in terms of you know, the, the issues where they want their organizations to make a positive difference. In fact, white, Hispanics, Asians, and others, uh, about 21 to 28 percent cited racial inequity as, you know, in their top five issues, whereas 44% of Black and African-American people who are employed in the U.S. cited that. And I think it's, from my perspective, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is a population who has really been put down, uh, suffered, you know, disadvantaged, and it is a, a very good time to speak up. And I think we, as folks in HR, communications, and you know, other management positions, need to recognize that and, and not just create spaces to talk about it, but to make real policy changes that um, you know, are more than just words. The results of your survey of 2,000 employees also show that employees with children at home are more likely to advocate for a union and post a negative review online about their employer. What can employers and HR learn from these feelings? And I'm very interested in your take on the union part. 
As a parent uh, myself, I can tell you that some of these uh, data really resonated with me. For one thing, parents were much more likely to say that they prefer to work in the office. So uh, when we asked folks whether they wanted to return to the office or work remotely, 39% of people who had no kids in the household said that they preferred to work remotely versus 27% with kids who wanted to return to the office. And I can tell you as a father of two nuclear powered children, I'm pretty happy to be in my office today where they are not present as much as I love them. But the thing that was surprising to me was that, yes, it's true. Parents across the board were, or, or those with kids in the house, I shouldn't, I shouldn't just say parents, but those with kids in the house were more likely to be activated on a number of issues, both for and against their employer. So, um, so yes, about 44% of folks with kids in the house said that they would advocate for a union. Meanwhile, uh, 22% without kids in the house said the same thing. So it's almost double. But what's interesting, Marie, is that you have that tendency for activation also plays out on the positive side. So folks with kids in the house 71% are likely to be involved in a mentoring program by comparison to 56% without kids. 70% are likely to say that they would participate in charitable matching gift program. 68% said that they would volunteer with their organization and 51% would buy company stock. And the numbers across the board for those without kids in the house are just about half. Let's focus on your findings regarding female respondents. You found that women are more likely to report feeling tired and unappreciated compared to their male counterparts. Any idea why? And what would be your recommendations for HR professionals? You know, in our culture, generally speaking, women are more often the caregivers in the home. I and mean, that's, that's certainly the case in my home, despite the fact that my wife is a doctor and has an incredible career. You know, she ends up doing a lot of the parenting tasks uh, and it is um, totally male privilege at work here. And so I think, you know, the thing to focus on is less about what's happening with women feeling so tired or unappreciated and rather what can we as men, uh, and I say we meaning myself and, and other men who are in leadership positions, what can we do to support our female counterparts and colleagues. And so I think the HR profession in general, you know, there's so much room for developing programs to, you know, enhance sensitivity and thoughtfulness in the workplace and to and also to, to look at the very real problem of gender pay inequity and the number of women who have opportunities to get into leadership and management roles. So that is, uh, I would say, the, the best thing to do here is not to try to change perceptions, but rather to change realities. And, you know, we, we saw that women said that they were uh, less likely to buy, you know, for example, less likely to buy company stock. And when you look at that, you think like, oh, okay, well, Maybe we could provide some extra training for women and, you know, on finance. Okay, that's probably a good idea in general. Uh, the entire population could use, you know, probably better financial management practices and, and understanding. But I think more importantly, if we address that underlying issue of the pay gap, uh, you're probably going to see people feel a lot more grateful and a lot more likely to invest in their own companies. Any other interesting facts, findings that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, one of the things I want to just go back to a minute is that top five list. When I look at those top five issues, 
the well-being and health of employees coming out top. I think, you know, followed closely by, by job creation, economic security. I look around and I think, look, there are so many systems that are failing us today. The healthcare system's overrun. People are suspicious of the police. Congress can't seem to pass a bill. My goodness, I mean, the media is suspect, everything. Meanwhile, who has more information about you? Who do you come in contact with more than your employer in your workplace? I think there's a real opportunity for HR professionals, for leaders across every range of, of industry and, and work environment to take that really seriously and say, look, we need to take care of our people in some very material ways. And I think that data privacy issue showing up in the top five as well is another indicator of that. We're constantly messaging employees, you know, here's a phishing scam, watch out, don't disclose confidential information. Meanwhile, who's got more data on you than your employer? So I think we need to reciprocate that as well. Your employees need to know that you're taking care of their data. You have their health and well-being in mind. You are committed to their economic security and their growth and development. That's the real opportunity here. And then as we do that, ensure that you're really looking at your employee population, not as one big group of employees sitting there waiting to receive the message, but as really empowered people who are, have their own identities. And the more their identities are respected and seen and supported, the more likely that they are to take action on behalf of your company, on behalf of the employer, and, and to really help out your customers and your, your, your teammates as well. Thank you, Ethan, for discussing the results of your recent survey and for sharing your insights. It's such a pleasure, Marie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources.